Amen, amen. I am so thankful for the faithfulness of the Lord this morning. If you are, say amen. amen. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord with each and every one of you this morning. You should have received a copy of our message notes today as you came in called The Prodigal God. And if you would pull that out this morning, we are cranking up a new series and we are absolutely pumped and stoked about this new series. It is probably this book, the uh, artwork there, Alex did an amazing job on excited about that. It's very similar to the book cover. Uh, we want to give you a book this morning if you will commit to a life group. And there's a, there is a card in your chair. We still have about eight life groups that are open. And we're excited about that. They're going to kick off this week. Some are kicking off this week. Actually, our whole staff, I am so excited because our whole staff is going with me this week for the very first time that we've ever been able to do this before to the Catalyst Conference in Atlanta, which is a, a major leadership conference that I go to every year, the first full week of October. It's Thursday, Friday, two days, two full days in Atlanta, Georgia. And every year I stand there and I'm just so refreshed, tears streaming down my face, worshiping God in amazing presence of the Lord there in the venue in Gwinnett Center is 12,000 leaders, local church pastors, youth pastors, evangelists, children's ministry workers, worship leaders. All of these folks are local church leaders that come for this conference. And every year I stand there going, Father, I so wish that I could bring people from the church who could bring this thing back to victory and see this thing catch fire in West Memphis and in Marion. And I'm so thrilled. This is the very first year we're actually able to take our whole staff. That is me and Simona and Alex and Haley Vest, our children's pastor, and Jeremy Soto, our, our new youth pastor. Come on, guys, get behind him. I'm so excited about what God's doing there. And Greg Lackey, our worship leader, it is going to be an amazing time. So those groups where they're leading... They won't kick off Prodigal God until next week, okay? Uh, but if you're in one of the other groups, everybody's starting this week except for a couple of those that'll be out of town leading, and they're, they're going to be notifying you if you're in those groups. This morning, I want to look to the Bible and, first of all, the, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be spending some time in Luke for the next eight weeks. Now, this book is such a major book. I, I, I'm, we are sowing this into your life. We're giving it as a gift to you if you will commit to being part of uh, one of our life groups. And we're excited about it. Our life group ministry has grown every semester. We started with 30 the first time. We had 40 the next time. We had 70 the next time. And we're already we're on our way to having 100 this time. So we're excited about that. It's, gonna, it's an amazing ministry. It's really where real-life disciple-making takes place in victory is our life groups. Everybody say life groups. And we're excited about it. It's an amazing opportunity for you to get to know some folks and build some relationships. The reason I have been looking forward to today for months, I read this book last year, and honest to goodness, this book shook me. This book that we're starting today was the seedbed, it was foundational for all of the change that has taken place in Victory Church over the last year, the last 18 months. This book shook my life. It's a very short little book. It's a very compact, about 135 pages, estimated somewhere around there. But when you pick it up, you cannot put it down because it opens up this, what we normally call the parable of the prodigal son 
in a way that I have never, ever seen in my life. This is one of the top ten books that I have ever read in my whole life. I've read books for years, not just hundreds, but thousands of books. And this book, I promise you, if you will get into this book and you will commit to a life group, and you will get in the Word and you'll come and worship with us on Sunday mornings, and you will let Luke 15 touch you on a consistent basis because we're going to peel this thing, a layer of the onion back every week and grab a hold of something that I promise you you have never, ever seen before in the Word of God. This is the problem we have when we look at a familiar passage like this is that folks start to think, well, I'm familiar with it. I've squeezed all the lemon there is out of, that, out of, that, out of the juice out of that lemon. But I want you to know there's a whole lot more there before that we've never seen And this absolutely is going to shake our church to really grasping what the true gospel is. Now, I'm convinced that American Christianity thinks they know what the gospel is. And that's the problem that we face. Is one of the biggest critical issues that we face is that when we really think we have it, that's when we are desperately in need for God to uh, illuminate and open the door and show us something that we've never seen before. And it's, it's all about this whole this whole principle of letting God break our hearts for the things that break his heart. It's it's really grasping an understanding of what Jesus Christ came to do. The Bible says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you'll look with me this morning, I have for our very first text, one of Jesus' purpose statements. When the Bible says, uh, Jesus is quoting, or the word of the Lord in the Gospels or in some of the epistles sometimes, it will say, for this purpose or for this reason. Jesus said in John 12, for this reason I came to this very hour. This, this is my, what the French called the raison d'etre. This is my reason for being. This is my reason for existence. One of Jesus' purpose statements, read it out loud with me. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Everybody say this after me. God is concerned about the lost. Not just people, but lost things. He's concerned about lost institutions, lost societies, lost nations, lost people groups. It is not just wrapped up in the individual, but it's in the whole corporate creation and what God has done throughout the whole universe, not just on the planet, but as light continues increasing and the universe continues growing, God is all about recapturing everything that has been what? Lost. I want you to look with me, please, this morning to Luke chapter 15. And we've got all of this, and I'm going to take time to read. There's, there's a good little, we're going to read the whole chapter because I think this is important. Not going to preach a whole long time this morning. Today is just the introduction. We're just going to basically come up to the chute. We're going to fire the gun, and we're going to start the horse around the track. And we're going to run this track for eight weeks. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, buckle up. we got some stuff we're going to cover, and I'm excited about it. Here we go. We're reading from Luke chapter 15. The Bible says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Everybody say, there's always a Pharisee complaining somewhere. Come on. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my what? My lost sheep. Everybody say lost. Say lost sheep. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Moving on, we have another parable, the parable of the lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is what? Rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 11, here we come. What is normally commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had what? Two sons. That's critical. Everybody say, two sons. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me. Everybody say, give me. Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out. And go back to my father. I love the King James here. It says, I will arise. How many of you know when you realize that you're not in the place that you were born to be in and you come to your senses? How many of you know you have to decide you are going to what? Everybody say, get up and get out. He said, I will arise and I'm going to go home to my daddy. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Make me. Notice the difference. Before the party, before girls gone wild, he said, give me. But he's been to a place that's totally robbed him and made him bankrupt of everything that he started with, and he's in a place where he is desperately needing the mercy and the favor of the Father. And this time, he's no longer saying, give me. What is he saying? Make me. And that's where God wants each and every one of us this morning. Not just give me, but make me. He says, make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, I love it. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, a long way off. His father saw him and filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. Oh my gosh. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. Mm. 
And if I stopped here and told you the intensity of the Greek word for kiss, it would make you blush because it is just, I mean, it's Pepe Le Pew to the third power. Come on, you remember the cartoon? I mean, the father is just, just elaborately pouring out. He's so excited to see his lost son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Verse 21, then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the, and the father stopped him. He didn't even let him finish what he had already rehearsed that he was going to say because the father saw that his heart was now right. He was no longer in a give me attitude, but he was in a father make my heart right with you attitude. Okay, just, just, just hang on, buddy. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hey, servants, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they begin to celebrate and they're having a party. Celebrate good times. No, no. My son is home. He's found again. Banana. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked them, What's going on up at the house? Hacienda's hopping tonight. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. And he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he didn't say when my brother came home. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. King James says it was fit, it was meat ESV says it was fitting. It was the right thing to do. The, the, the elder brother was all concerned about appearances and, and, and really what is appropriate. And the father said, hey, listen, I'm the daddy of the house here. I'm telling you, this is the right thing to do. My son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found again. I want you to hear this morning the powerful truth of how the gospel of God can penetrate our hearts and this church and our culture and change us for how God wants us to be. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, I thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. Thank you for the word of the Lord. Is that I just open today. I pray you give us ears to hear, you give us eyes to see, that we have hearts that understand and hearts that perceive. Holy Spirit, come today. You're the only teacher. I can't do anything apart from you. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let me speak today as the oracles of God. Let this seed of the word of the Lord fall on prepared soil that it may grow 30, 60, and 100 fold and that fruit may remain in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Everybody know what a parable is? Everybody say parable. A parable is a natural story with a spiritual meaning. Jesus loved to use parables. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, he said in one location, he said, I'm just going to tell you guys, I'm preaching parables so that those people that are standing here that are not intended to see it, that it will actually be hidden from them. He said, because I'm going to tell you something, if I made it really plain, these folks who've hardened their hearts, this pharisaical, overly religious, self-righteous, filled with churchianity, this generation of Jews that are here called the Pharisees, how many of you know that was Jesus' biggest problem? Sinners didn't fight Jesus. Sinners were ready to hear the gospel, the gospel of salvation that would set them free and, 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 and minister to the broken parts of their lives. The poor weren't upset with Jesus. They didn't fuss about the fact that Jesus had come to set at liberty those that were captive, those that were bound, that were blind. He came to heal them so they could see. Uh, There was no sinner who ever caused Jesus problems. It was religious folk. It, It was folk who basically have had church a certain way their whole life, and they think that's the way it always ought to be, and that's the only kind of church that the Holy Ghost ever shows up at. And as a matter of fact, I want you to see this morning in this whole parable, the, the, the whole concept is of a parable is a story that is hurled alongside. It's the Greek word parabolos, and, and para means alongside, and balos is the, basically the word for ball. It means to hurl. And so Jesus is basically talking to fishermen, and he's talking about catching fish. He's talking to farmers, and he's preaching about wheat and tares. And, and he's standing before a tremendously religious crowd of people that are caught up in their self-righteousness and their keeping of all of their fence laws that have been erected on the outside of the laws of God, Jesus basically said, you ain't going in and you're just, you're just multiplying the burden on the hearts of these people and you don't intend for anybody else to go in. The biggest rebuke that Jesus ever had was to religious folks day after day after day after day. Come on, say amen. It's critical that we examine our hearts. I have a friend, his, he, he pastored the church, 3,000, 3,500 members church in Reno, Nevada. They had Bible studies going on among the strippers in the casinos. Some of you just absolutely, that just floors you to think that that could be going on. Some of those girls in the process of trying to make a living were part of those Bible studies and would get saved and would get training in the local church that my brother, my friend Robert pastored. They continued stripping for a little while, and then when they got under conviction, the church didn't basically stand in their face and go, you're going to hell if you don't cut that out. The Spirit of God had room to convict them, and they, they had change, and the church was there. He told me one time, he said, Michael, I'd much rather fight the sin devils that I fight in Reno than the spiritual religious devils you fight in Memphis. Because I can fight sin devils and we can pull down strongholds, but religious devils are hard devils to fight. Because they think they're righteous. They think they know God. Better said, they think they know Jesus. Robert's church would provide training 
and provide, they had a whole job system where they would plug some of these girls in after they would quit their stripping and start a new career. And the church wasn't just there to say, you better quit, you better turn or you're going to burn. But they were there to provide a transitional mechanism to put those girls into a place so that they could begin to have a career and make a living and begin to walk in the freedom and the blessing and the forgiveness of God. Come on, somebody. I I know that's crazy because we're in the Bible Belt South and you just don't even get in the pulpit and say the word stripper. It's just not right. But I'm going to tell you something. We've got two different kinds of people here in this last parable. And I want you to grab a hold of this principle. I want you to understand this morning that the chapter headings are not inspired by God. They were put in there later by translators in order to help us kind of get maybe an overview or it was kind of an idea. You do realize that Jesus didn't stop when he wasn't standing there dictating to a scribe and he was going, okay, are you ready? Luke chapter 15 verse 27 is the next one, right? And then he starts to say, blessed is the man. No, no, that's not how it happened. As a matter of fact, the chapters and verses didn't even come until way later. It was Archbishop Stephen Langton in the 13th century that began to separate the Bible into chapters. And it was in 1560 when the Geneva Bible was published that we first have an English Bible with chapters that are split into verses. So I want you to realize this morning that when we look at this and we see that somebody has titled it the parable of the prodigal son, that's not inspired. The Bible literally titles it by the first sentence. There was a man who had how many? Two sons. And I want to present to you this morning the idea, the possibility that they're both lost. How many of you know you can be lost and go the way of the world? You can be just as lost sitting in a pew in church on Sunday morning and not be any closer to the Father. Matter of fact, the elder brother was on the piano side, second pew, day after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but didn't have any more relationship with the Father than the younger one who squandered his inheritance. I'm telling you, this book will change your life. Three parables. Three parables about lostness. The first one is about the lost sheep in your notes. The second one is about a lost coin. The third one is about two lost sons. Everybody say two lost sons. Now, I'm moving quickly. I've got my introduction laid, and I'm going to give you a couple things, and then we're going to basically share the Lord's table this morning. It's what we're getting ready for. The rest of this message for just the next few moments, about the next seven, eight minutes, and I'm going to be done. I want you to get your heart ready to receive the Lord's table because as we do that, we're signifying that we're renewing our covenant vertically with the Father, and we're renewing our covenant horizontally with our brothers and sisters. And we're saying that we're committed to walking in unity and love and forgiveness and mercy together. That's why we're here this morning. I want you to realize that the point of each one of these three parables is that heaven rejoices over what was lost now being found. Heaven does not rejoice over someone who thinks they're righteous and does not realize they have a need of God. Jesus said he came to heal the sick. Physician, heal yourself. He's not come to heal those who think they're whole. The point of heaven, the point of each is that heaven rejoices over what was lost being found. And I want to share something with you that is going to be the most dramatic thing you have ever heard in your life because this is part of what we assume 
in the Word and what we have basically been mistaught. And so many times we have misinformation, we have misrepresentation of the Word of God. And I just want to tell you this morning that what you commonly think the word prodigal means does not mean. Prodigals does, prodigal does not mean wayward. The prodigal son is not the wayward son. As a matter of fact, if you really want to get technical here, there are technically two prodigals in this story. There's one who stayed and there's one who strayed. I want you to, as you see this, they're going to put up the actual definition, the dictionary definition. Let's read it together. It actually tells us how to pronounce it. Everybody say prodigal. It's an adjective. It means spending money or resources freely or recklessly. The, the, The negative side of this, it literally means waster. Somebody who is a spendthrift, who just throws things away. The the really best English word for this is the word extravagant. Everybody say extravagant. Say it with me one more time. Here we go. Extravagant. It's really the parable of two extravagant sons. Now, one of them is obvious because he goes out and he throws his inheritance away in the world. The other one is actually a prodigal who stayed because he throws away the opportunity to be one with the father because he's trying to earn the father's acceptance through a works-based mentality. I've slaved for you. I've never disobeyed for you. I've always done the right thing. I didn't get, you didn't have to come get me out of jail, daddy. I, I was always there looking good and with right respect, but yet never having a real relationship with the father. I mean, you know, we can sit up and look good and we can put on our first church smile and just be eat up with jealousy and bitterness and hatred and prejudice and malice and envy and every kind of sin and idolatry and lust on the inside of us. The outside package can look like it's been spit-shined for Sunday school. Come on, baby. But it's what's working on the inside of our hearts. And what I want you to see this morning is prodigal does not mean wayward son. Prodigal means extravagant. And I'm going to blow your mind with my last point before we get ready to take the Lord's table this morning. I want you to realize is that neither one of those sons are the biggest prodigal in this story. The biggest prodigal in this story is the father who represents God, your father, who extravagantly gave everything there was for you so that the wild son and the religious son both could find their way. They both desperately need a savior. And the father extravagantly, he was a prodigal. He spent recklessly the precious blood of his son. So this morning, no matter where you are, whether he saves you from the gutter or he saves you from the pew, He's here to save you this morning because our God is a prodigal God. He's a God who extravagantly and spendthriftly wastes his love, pouring it out upon you and me. Oh, my Father in heaven, I cannot even begin to fathom and understand what I just said to you. But we're going to peel this thing back layer by layer off of the onion for the next eight weeks, and I promise you, this will shake you as an individual. It will shake you in how you view your sons and daughters. There are some of you in here this morning that are desperately crying out for God to save your children, to save your sons and save your daughters. And let me tell you something, just because they're in church looking good doesn't mean they're saved. 
I want to tell you something. Sometimes it's easier to rescue somebody who's been out there and had their gullet full of the world because they come back broken knowing they need God. Sometimes the hardest person to reach is the person that's sat in the pew their whole life because they think they're there when they're not. It's critical that we open our hearts and we say, Father, I want to know that I know that I know that I know you because you are a prodigal God who extravagantly gave all of your love for me, for each and every person. He died. He gave himself for us. Listen to this last verse and I'm finished. God the Father is the greatest prodigal in this story. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took my place. Our prodigal God poured out everything he had, his whole inheritance in his son for us. Jesus Christ came and took your place. He took my place. He loved you so much this morning. I don't know whether you are fighting an addiction that is so deep that you absolutely have no way out except God does a miracle in your life. I don't know. I'm confident that there are people sitting in this room this morning that desperately need the touch of God in their marriage. It is on the rocks. It is breathing its last breath. If God doesn't breathe into your situation, it's going to change. Not for the better. Too many people spend their whole lives knowing some of the truth of the gospel and they want to travel the way of self-discovery, the way the young prodigal son, the one who strayed, went. And they think they'll come to God and cry out to him for salvation in the 11th hour only to die at 1030. None of us has that understanding or the confidence that we're going to live long enough to hopefully in the last moment say, God, let me get my heart right with you. Come on, saints. Our lives, come on, folks. When I say saints this morning, I'm talking to people who, who you know in your heart, you have an assurance of salvation. You know that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior and Lord. My prayer, and this is what I'm crying out to God for in this next eight weeks, that he will so transform us that we who've been saved for a while do not have the opportunity to catch this contagious disease of Pharisaism. Because you can become one in less than 24 hours. You can take on the spirit of the elder brother. And I want to tell you something. The biggest battles that I fought as a pastor here has never been sin demons. It's been religious folk who think they know better. That's been my biggest problem is folks who get on an elder brother's spirit and go, well, I've been here all these years. I've served you. I've served God. Why don't you so-and-so? I want to tell you something. God wants us all to cleanse our hearts from any opportunity for that kind of stuff, for that seed to get planted and for us to get that kind of an attitude. As a pastor, as a husband, as a wife to your husband, sister, 
a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a life group leader. Maybe you're here as a guest this morning and this is your very first time and you have never in your life heard that God was that extravagantly in love with you. And I want you to know this morning as we prepare today to pray, I want to ask everybody in in the room, if you would, please just bow your heads with me, please, for this moment.